I V M. Dear listeners, this week I would like to rebroadcast and share what I think is one of the most important episodes we've recorded on the Pragati podcast on international issues. Back in September 2018, Ameya Naik sat down with me to explain what's been happening in Syria with an endlessly violent civil war that's been raging to this date. We talked about how peaceful protests in Syria almost a decade ago led to a brutal crackdown by the state and then there was the rise of violent separatist forces and eventually a full-blown civil war. The human cost of this is not yet fully known with hundreds of thousands of deaths and millions of displaced refugees. As the conflict heats up again in October 2019, it's time we listen to this episode again. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics and international relations. I'm your host Pavan Srinath. Ameya Naik is a non-resident associate fellow at the Takshashila Institution and wears many other hats besides that. Last September, we feared that a brutal wave of violence would descend upon the last surviving Syrian rebels. While that threat was temporarily diffused last year, everything that we feared and even more is happening right now. My thanks again to Ameya for helping me share some of these updates since our recording last year. In the middle of October 2019, just 2 weeks ago, the Trump administration decided to pull back its remaining 1000 special forces from the Syrian region, where they were working closely alongside the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which included the Kurdish militia. This allowed Turkey to attack the SDF and occupy certain parts of northern Syria, which included a deal being struck with Russia. Turkey has a large number of Syrian refugees on its soil. In the episode Ameya was worried that the refugees would be sent back to Syria whenever Turkey decided that the war was over. Turkey is now using the refugees as a bargaining chip saying that they will create a safe zone in northern Syria and relocate the refugees there. But Turkey's Erdogan has also taken a leaf from Colonel Gaddafi's book and threatened the European Union that if anyone places sanctions or does not support the new offensive on the Kurds in Syria, Turkey will start allowing refugees to pass through into Europe. Gaddafi by the way used to tell the European leaders that Libya was what stood between them and I quote a black wave of migrants from Africa. Erdogan is using the same tactic to exert silence even as Turkish forces commit war crimes and crimes against humanity killing civilian Kurdish leaders including in at least one case an ISIS style execution. Meanwhile we are also seeing massive anti-government protests and demonstrations across Iraq and we don't know if a space is being created again for ISIS also known as Daesh to come together again and start occupying territory. any number of things can happen in the coming months i encourage you to come back and listen to these remarks again at the end of the episode so that you can see these developments in the context painted by amea we also have a few new links in the description for you to learn more with that let's take a short break and get back to the pragati episode from september 2018 Hey everybody, welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. And why aren't you following us? I've been asking you for almost a year now to follow us. Please do follow us. One of the things that I do ask you guys to do every so often is if you hear something you like, take a screenshot, tag us on social media. As I mentioned, we're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So this week our Tamil podcast Punni Selvan is going to complete 100 episodes this Wednesday. Make sure you tune in for that. On Cyrus says Cyrus is joined by Roshan Netalkar. Cyrus and Roshan discuss the eco-friendly music concert that Roshan is putting together. Also check out last week's Cock and Bull. Uh, Raj Kaushal, an old friend of mine was on that episode and we had a really interesting conversation that spanned all kinds of different subjects. On advertising is dead. Varun Dikirala is joined by an old friend and head of agency partnerships and creative services at Google India, Aditya Swamy. They talk about the evolving marketer in today's time. On football, should ball host Gaurav Karthik and Siva round up the weekend's fixtures, most notably Liverpool versus Tottenham. On Golgappa with Tripti Khamkar, Tripti is joined by Mandar Bhide, a stand-up comic who talks to her about the business of content and some fun experiences doing shows. Speaking of shows, on Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch, Janice and Anirudh talk about HBO's new teen drama series Euphoria. And on the Geek Fruit podcast, we have a treat for the Breaking Bad fans. Join hosts Jishnu and Tejas as they discuss El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. Simplified is back again with part 4 of their 150th episode. In this episode they talk about the implications of Brexit and the transformation of Dubai. Speaking of other countries on postcards from nowhere, Utsav talks about his trip to Turkey with his friends and how you can curate your travel to make them the most fun and memorable experiences. 
On the origin of things, Chuck narrates an interesting story about a Brazilian company that struggled its way through World War II and the Great Depression. On IVM Likes, IVM staffers Jude, Ritika and Madhuri talk about pop culture that moved them and made them more empathetic as people. They also recommend some really cool things that you can check out. And with that, let's get you on with your show. Welcome back to the Syria episode on the Pragati podcast. Amiya, welcome back to the show. Can you give us a backgrounder on the conflict ongoing in Syria? Hi, Pavan. So, we're dealing with quite the somber topic today. It is one I've been following. You know, when we talked about North Korea and Iran, there's still a little bit of Dr. Strange love, you know, uh, nuclear theater is so absurd that it's funny, but it's almost impossible to find humor in what's happening in Syria. So, let's deal with it as it is. So, in the absence of satire or nightmare humor, we'll have to settle for just uh, capsule history. Uh, so you're right. The issue in Syria did start in uh, about 2011. So 2010, December is when uh, the first of the Arab Spring uprising starts in Tunisia. 2011, Jan is the Tehrir Square protest in Egypt. Uh, Mubarak's government in Egypt falls the next month. Protests start in Libya that eventually lead to civil war there. So these are all popular quasi-spontaneous protests from a wide range of civilians which are sort of standing up to fairly dictatorial long-term governments, right? By and large. Correct. Each of these. Uh, Tunisia, Ben Ali, uh, Mubarak in Egypt, Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, and so also uh, in Syria, in early 2011 or so, protests start happening, mostly youth groups especially in the city of Homs. And uh, in the early days, especially in 2011, you know, June, July or so, nothing had turned violent yet. And it was a time for optimism, really, uh, because Egypt had had this sort of result. Tunisia had had this sort of result. Uh, and this was student groups, the Syrian middle class, large sections of society who were... Uh, engaged in these protests, right? Yeah, it was quite broad-based, still very much youth-led, especially early in 2011. But then what started happening was that government officials and uh, military officers started defecting. Okay. Right? Which is pretty significant. Like, if you're doing nonviolent resistance, one of your goals and one of your markers of success is that you have been able to get members of the regime officials to defect. That was happening actually fairly early in Syria. Uh, I think either the Syrian ambassador to the US or the Syrian ambassador to the UN had a very high profile resignation, uh, became like the, the foreign minister of the government in exile or the rebel government, as it were. And, you know, even later in 2011, it starts turning violent. The Syrian regime starts cracking down. Uh, but before we get to the crackdown, let's just let's just keep in mind that, as you said, the reason people are protesting was because they were living in a dictatorship. Right. So Hafiz al-Assad became the president of Syria in 1971. He'd been involved in some capacity in the government since uh, the early 1960s when there was a Ba'athist coup. Once he took power in 1971, he consolidated. 2011 was 40 years of Assad family precedence, right? Right. Hafiz al-Assad to 2000, his son Bashar 2000 to 2011. And when Bashar took over in 2000, uh, you know, after his father's death, at that time, he was seen as a moderate reformist candidate, you know, not inherently antipathic to the West, willing to work with people, willing to bring about reforms, willing to modernize, kind of the stuff that you hear about Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia right now, the same sort of rhetoric and like glow was surrounding him. And kind of the rhetoric that surrounded even Saddam Hussein 30, 40 years oh, ago. Right. right? Uh, and in every case, what's missing from those descriptions is that they are running a repressive state that is designed to keep themselves personally in power. And that were horribly undemocratic. Completely undemocratic. And so, you know, it's not a surprise that protests broke out. Uh, one of my classmates actually tells this story, right? So her family escaped from Syria or some of her family, including her, escaped from Syria fairly early, about 2012. Okay. Uh, and she tells this story about how 
you know they were out to dinner for her younger brother's birthday or a celebration or something and so you know as adults will somebody there turned to her brother who's still a child at the time and says and what do you want to be when you grow up and the child very innocently says i want to be the president and there is a hush that comes over the table people are looking around to see has anybody heard you know there's a tangible fear that comes from that response right and i think that story really speaks to the extent to which the assad family had just this iron control over syria and syrian government assad ran unopposed in every election as such right and so of course he won he was elected back if you want to give any credence to those elections that's theater absolutely and so from late 2011 the regime starts cracking down uh they first start attacking and arresting protesters once a protester is arrested eight times out of 10 nine times out of 10 they are never heard from again right and we now have reports coming out from prisons that tell us that they experienced some truly horrific forms of torture while there but in any event even in 2011 they are being disappeared the free syrian army among other smaller groups starts fighting back and that's your first sort of syrian civil war conflict that's there right is is between the syrian government and whoever is supporting them and then the rebels who are supporting them so where does the islamic state feature in all this are they a part of the rebels are they an offshoot or is that happening something more in iraq and then it sort of spills over to syria mostly the third uh, so some form of the group of people or militants that is today the islamic state that is today uh, daesh is in existence since 1999 or 2000 then not particularly a threat to certainly not to the saddam regime they're not immediately a threat to the post iraq war us supported iraqi government either but then a couple of things happen one is that a bunch of these militants ironically are collected by the us government and like the us backed iraqi government themselves and put in the same jail this gives them a chance to actually get to know each other and build up some sort of network amongst themselves in the jail rather than in the country exactly uh, no but then they get out of the jail they either are released or escape so they have the chance to continue that network second thing that happens is that the us government insists that iraq should follow a debathification policy right so anybody affiliated with the baath party at a certain level of seniority or higher is cut out of the iraqi administration right it's supposed to be part of like making a fresh start but the problem is again it was a dictatorship all local authorities were baath party members and so there's a whole bunch of like military people administrators who no doubt they were complicit in the saddam regime but they were also basically the people who administered the local area and now they're out of a job and they're very disgruntled and so there's this new wave of support for this sort of uh, militancy and between these two things by 2014 daesh just erupts in iraq and they takes you know substantial amounts of territory and they have people with experience in administration in warfare and in other things so these are not just random people with guns so unlike your average uh terrorist group they actually have substantial administrative and planning capacities largely consisting of uh ex baath party officials who were disqualified from doing exactly those roles i want to pause you there just to sort of clarify to everyone what this baath party is because we talked about baathists even in the reference to assad hmm. um can you spend a minute on that sure so the baath party was the party to which both saddam hussein and hafiz al-assad belonged a very crude way to say this is that it is the communist party of the arab world <laughs> uh, okay in that they are like the aggressively secular anti-religious again power centralizing in theory like modernist big state party but when saddam was facing defeat in the first arab war he took down the flag of iraq and in hand wrote on it the slogan ila ila la right so very quickly reversed when he needed to garner religious support to support his war so whatever their principles beyond a the point they became the parties of saddam and the party of 
Hafiz and then Bashar al-Assad. Okay. So coming back, the Islamic State is something so therefore that exploded in Iraq and was opportunistic in occupying parts of Syria and sort of taking on the Syrian government in Syria as well? Yeah, they were basically taking advantage of the chaos that was around them, right? The fact that there was a weak government in Iraq and a contested government and a war going on in Syria. If memory serves right in Syria, most of the territory they took over was originally rebel-held. Not so much government forces held. Uh, But they were able to take over a substantial amount of territory on both sides of the border and hold it for like a couple of years to three years. By now, by like early 2018, they have again been beaten back to one or two very small areas, uh, mostly on the Syrian side of the border. Uh, now that Mosul has also been retaken in Iraq, they're they're almost almost driven out of Iraq. Uh, remains to be seen what exactly they will do next. Uh, but for a while, you had like a a major multi party conflict between Daesh and the governments of Iraq and Syria and rebel forces and U.S. forces attacking Daesh and you know, other regional actors occasionally taking shots at them as well. Right. And we'll sort of get to the legality, the international law context of this a little later. But the Syrian rebels, uh, who are not the IS, were backed by the West in terms of armaments and funding and so on, right? So was the West sort of either implicitly or explicitly supporting this as a freedom movement of some sort? This gets complex, right? I'm not sure that it was ever stated US policy or like NATO policy or anything to back rebels fighting against the Assad regime to overthrow the Assad regime. But then once Daesh got into the picture, it very much was US policy to support various groups to fight against Daesh. The complication is that obviously these groups are the same. Right. Or are affiliated with each other. So Syria also has a very complicated and fragmented ethnic breakup within itself. Different groups have different Syrian groups that are operating purely within Syria, still have different internal allegiances, alliances, etc. Right. Different ethnicities, different religions in play. There's a Uh, complex history. Yeah. Ethnicities, religions, sects, so on. Uh, Some of the rebel groups that were fighting against the Assad government also aligned with ISIS. Okay. Right? The Free Syrian Army never did. But then they were also fighting ISIS. Amir, so far you have talked to us about the Syrian government, the various sort of fluid rebel factions against the Syrian government and the Islamic State. And uh, But they've not just been the only players, right? The others who I guess the Turkish government is not very happy with are the Kurds or the Kurds in the north. Uh, And they also have a different ethnicity. They've been persecuted both in Syria and in Turkey. And uh, how were they starting to react to all of this? The Kurdish autonomous region in Iraq, which also has its own armed forces, as well as various Kurdish groups in Syria. Oh yeah, they're in Iraq as well, right? Not only are they in Iraq, they have held a referendum and said that they want to become an independent country based in that territory that is in the north of Iraq, where they were also attacked by Daesh. So if you remember reading about Sinjar or the fact that there was, you know, a siege which like US and Iraqi forces actually broke and rescued a very large number of people in Nineveh province, etc. All of that was happening in in either Kurdish or Kurdish-controlled territory. So, large ethnic group, not entirely sort of homogeneous or under one command, but still, large ethnic group generally found in this area, very effective militarily, probably the most effective on-ground fighting force in that region, and so have been at the forefront of at least the US support to anti-Daesh efforts, has been channeled through Kurdish forces. But Turkey designates Kurdish political parties in Turkey as terrorist groups. Right? For exactly the same reason. They are worried about Kurdish separatism, that parts of Turkey may be called to be part of a potential independent Kurdistan. Uh, So they're like a transnational group now, right? Which uh, clearly 
bugs a lot of countries it troubles a lot i mean it's yeah difficult yeah, yeah. for many countries to deal with them they were always present in these places and so in general all three governments the turkish government even before erdogan uh saddam's government in iraq and assad's government in syria had all tried to suppress them right it it just so happened that they had an autonomous region in iraq but the kurds were one of the first groups that saddam hussein back in the day had targeted with chemical weapons attacks right so it's not that and as i said and daesh also targeted them so it's it's not that they have had any shortage of troubles uh turkey has recently added on to these because uh, uh i forget exactly when i think it was earlier this year itself in january this year the turkish military shelled and bombed syrian kurdish enclave it's called afrin and so you know you had the situation where the kurdish forces were fighting islamic state or some other islamic state affiliated group on one front they had their backs to the turkish border and then they were getting attacked from the turkish side as well because to the turkish government both of the parties to that particular conflict are terrorists and they don't want either of them to gain an ascendance you have essentially been telling us about is there are at least four major local groups of players involved in this conflict and we are not even getting to the Iraqi national army and the Iraqi government and apart from all this we have all the foreign players right we've sort of briefly mentioned something about the united states and sort of nato and western forces but the other big behemoth is russia so how and when did russia get involved and what changed their intervention so the axis there is syria iran russia right Right. Uh, How and, can I forget Iran? And I mean, when did Iran get involved in Syria? Is like a historical and archaeological and anthropological <laughs> question. And Saudi Arabia on the other side, and... right? So the Assad regime has always been one of the most prominent Iranian clients. Uh, Iran has intervened quite openly to support the Syrian government. They had a number of forces affiliated with. Hezbollah which is the Iranian affiliated militant slash terrorist group in Lebanon sent forces through to support uh, Assad's government every time they looked shaky there are Iranian anti air batteries protecting major Syrian government installments they're fully committed right uh, there's a great article you can read by Dexter Filkins of the New Yorker he's profiling the commander of the Iranian Quds force which is again it's the elite force of the Iranian military so this man's name is Qasim Soleimani and uh, Filkins has done this profile on him and his presence in Syria and Lebanon and like all of the things that he's been managing and controlling there highly recommended reading fascinating as well uh, all of which to say Iran is very heavily invested in Syria Russia has started coming in I think about 2015 or so so they were always supporting the Syrian Iranian side in international negotiations in part because the US had carried out a military intervention in Libya and Russia and China had both been very clear about the fact that they are not going to allow anything of the sort to happen again and so you know maybe that confluence of interest drove the russians even closer to becoming a broker between the west and the syrian and iranian interests but since 2015 they have been very openly also weighing in on the syrian side on so, um, militarily you mean militarily so again they have trainers they have uh, anti air capacities there they are carrying out air strikes so now if you read about an air strike on rebel targets in syria uh it's not immediately easy to tell whether that was syrian planes iranian planes or russian planes it could be any or any mix of these right that that actively part of the military campaign and did this also tip the balance i mean the if i'm not mistaken the syrian uh, government was sort of on the retreat the number of areas that they could control was slowly dwindling but with the uh, overt russian military intervention the scales got tipped right so now the syrian government is in reasonable control of uh, territory yeah the syrian government now has control over most of the territory of syria and yes it it very much was the fact that they had the support of iran and then russia that 
enabled this. Uh, I mean, it was also the fact that they were willing to use a completely horrific degree of violence against their own people. And so, like, literally, you know, scorched earth policies of bombing and raising entire cities and settlements. But even the capacity to do that in the first place was bolstered by the addition of the air support from Russia. We'll be back with Amaya after this short break. How aware do you think you are of your laws and rights? Do you look up to laws when you are caught up in situations? Do you know what your rights are when you're stuck somewhere bad? Well, here's a show that can help you move an inch closer to being aware of what your rights are. Tune in to Know Your Kanoon with me, Amar Rana. This is a podcast meant to answer all your law-related queries. Catch Know Your Kanoon every week on the IVM website or the app or anywhere you get your podcast from. Welcome back to the Prakati Podcast. So, Amea, where are we today? Where have we come to? What's the fulcrum of the conflict today? Is there active, uh, there must be active violence happening in many parts of Syria, but is there any particular focus now? Uh, so, a little while ago, the focus was in Aleppo. Uh, then I think it was in Gota, which is actually like much closer than anywhere else the fighting has been to the actual Syrian capital. Uh, to Damascus and to the government installments. Uh, At this point, rebel forces, along with various civilian populations from rebel-head areas, have all been beaten back into a single northern province called Idlib. Uh, And Syrian, Iranian, Russian forces are gathering uh, along the border there. There's sort of every reason to expect a confrontation there. And, uh, you know, my worry, and I'm not alone in this, I mean, everyone who's been following this has been saying that the entire military strategy that Syria has been trying, the Syrian government has been trying to follow is precisely to, you know, to corral the rebels into one territory to keep narrowing it. And at the stage where that's happened, you can expect them to be completely indiscriminate and ruthless in their attacks on that territory. And so that's what we're worried is coming for Idlib next, is that uh, Syrian forces will basically launch a massive and indiscriminate level of violence there. Is this also explicitly linked to the use of chemical weapons? Because that's something we've not yet discussed. And uh, I think a while back, Trump also launched some missile strikes against uh, Syria, right? Uh, If I'm not mistaken, that was supposedly targeting potential chemical weapons facilities. Uh, he hit an airbase, which was used by the bombers that had launched the chemical weapons. So tell us a little. I know chemical weapons have been used in the Middle East even in the past. Um, many have been guilty of it. Uh, tell us a little about what happened and sort of broadly know what the convention is, right? I mean, if I'm not mistaken, thou shalt not use chemical or biological <laughs> that weapons. Is the ke- <laughs> that is, that the, is convention, the convention. Right? Do not do this. Yes. Flashback to early or mid-2012, right? There are not at that point reports about chemical weapons being used. The level of violence is still relatively moderate and a number of parties are pressing the US government to get involved on the side of the rebels, right? And Obama refuses to do this because in part he says, I was elected on ending these wars and I don't want to start and launch a new one in part because he's in the process of negotiating the Iranian nuclear deal and doesn't necessarily want to antagonize the Iranian side too much. But as we discussed on uh, the episode on Iran, uh, Trump is sort of breaking the Iran deal, not because of the failure on nuclear uh, compliance, but because Iran is doing all the other things Iran does. Right. And, you know, to be fair, the debate was not all that different even back in 2012, right? And so what Obama said was, there are certain things that I will treat as a red line, quote unquote, a red line. Oh, yeah. I Uh, remember the word red line being used. It became quite the flashpoint in itself. The Lakshman Rekha, but American. And so the, the thing that he pointed to as like, this will be the tipping point was if chemical weapons are used, right? From late 2012, we have reports of chemical weapons being used. By the Assad. By the Assad regime. Uh, against largely against civilian populations, right? It's not even that these were attacking 
specific military encampments or targets. No, they were being launched into out-and-out civilian areas. Mostly chlorine, but also sarin gas, which is a nerve agent. And, you know, I mean, both of these are absolutely horrific ways to kill people. They're extremely painful. And so even though Obama did not, in fact, take to military action as a result of this, he did issue an ultimatum, right? So there were attacks in Ghouta in 2013, after which he said, basically, Syria must get rid of all chemical weapons or they will face military action. This is exactly where Russia got involved. Russia was the one that brokered this deal. So August 2013, I think, is the ultimatum. September 2013 is when Russia says, no, we we have an arrangement. Syria will either destroy or export all chemical weapon stockpiles. And there was actually a, a joint commission of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, and the UN that was set up to implement and to monitor this process. They finished work in early 2015 and said, okay, of all like the known and declared stockpiles, yeah, they have been chipped out, broken down, they're gone. And, you know, this was on Russia's guarantee at the time. And clearly, whether it was Russian enablement or just Assad being shrewd, the chemical weapon stocks are not gone or they were able to procure new ones because... These attacks have continued since. And so that's what Trump was responding to as well, right? Trump was responding to like the latest reported attacks, I think, in Khan Sheikhun at that time. And so, you know, he said, again, it's not that different from what Obama said, right? If you use these weapons, then we will attack you. Uh, that missile strike was considered largely symbolic. It didn't do critical damage to... Uh, the airfield in itself was not necessarily critical infrastructure, nor was it damaged to the point that it could not be repaired and reused. Okay. Uh, but it was like a warning shot. Chemical weapons, so therefore, they're still in play. They, I mean, so likely Assad still has stockpiles and might use them. It seems extremely likely. Uh, and even without chemical weapons, there's also extreme use of force, right? And, and sort of indiscriminate use of force. And like you said, they're not even using it against the military, but against civilian populations. Yeah. So, you know, there's look, there's a distinction in international law between the circumstances that permit you to legally use force and then the set of things that you legally can or can't do while using force. Right. So the former is the law of recourse to force. It's in Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. 2.4 read with Article 51, you know, without getting into the details of it. If there is an armed rebel movement on your territory, it is probably lawful for you to use force against them. Right. So right? at the beginning, Assad, if there was already armed rebel forces, Assad was in the clear in using some amount of force. Yeah, like it's debatable the extent to which the rebellion actually was violent before the regime took to violence. Right. Uh, and it's a separate question on, okay, I mean, you've been a dictatorship for 40 years. Doesn't someone have the right? I mean, it's a moral and ethical question about whether somebody right. having a right to even use violent means to end your long-term dictatorship. In theory, protests are covered under some sort of right to speech and expression, right? But the minute they turn violent, or the minute that there is an armed group that says we want to overthrow this government, international law is fairly clear that that government has the right to use force against them. But the right to use force doesn't mean the right to use indiscriminate amounts of force uh, against military and civilian targets alike, right? So that's the second field is international humanitarian law. The you know, the, the source is basically the Geneva Conventions, as well as the additional protocols that deal with internal armed conflict. And this has been, I mean, the body of law that is international humanitarian law has been repeatedly and flagrantly violated in, uh, I mean, just go from the start, right? So even before we're talking about any armed confrontations, uh, there were what I mentioned, there were disappearances, there was... Uh, extended detention, you know, with no other process or procedure around it. Uh, there are multiple reports of torture, which is just point blank illegal. I mean, there is no circumstance under which international law encompasses torture. Right. Uh, and this was just the Assad government trying to create an atmosphere of fear and intimidation where they did not want anyone even voicing dissent. 
Correct. As I said, at this point, this is still when the protests are not, it's still protests, they're not necessarily violent. Right. There were extrajudicial killings, both in the streets of protesters, as well as people who were arrested. And at some point of time, you enter the phase of armed conflict, right? And sort of the cardinal sin in armed conflict is the deliberate targeting of civilians. Right? You are allowed to use force against legitimate military targets. Civilians are not a legitimate military target. Civilians have been targeted from the start by the Assad regime. Right? Uh, even without chemical weapons, which are sort of a even more ghastly, even more compounded uh, offense, even without chemical weapons, they were using barrel bombs, which, as the name suggests, is literally like a very crude dispersal explosive. Right. So there's no way to say that that is not indiscriminate. The nature of the weapon is indiscriminate. Right. You send shrapnel flying in all directions. and it, You can't hit a precise area. Hmm. Right. And then they were using them over what was known to be civilian areas. So it's again, it's, it's not just that it's indiscriminate, but they were deliberately targeting civilian areas. Uh, so again, compounded illegality there. Uh, there were attacks on first responders and on medical facilities. Uh, this is something that even Russian planes have been blamed for, right? So, like, there'll be a Syrian air force strike using whatever weapons that will cause massive damage. Then medical staff and other first responders will arrive. There'll be a follow-up airstrike that will kill even those, right? And, like, you can imagine what this does for the emergency healthcare situation when the healthcare facilities and workers themselves are being... So there were reports out of like Aleppo at the time saying, you know, saying things like, I am the only doctor left alive in the city. So deliberate targeting of civilians, deliberate targeting of medical staff, first responders and facilities. And accidents can happen in war where, you know, civilians and uh, medical personnel and all can be affected. But this is well and above accidents and mistargeting, right? This is deliberate. They're not in the same realm. You have a consistent pattern for six or seven years. Right. That has not let up or changed despite any amount of criticism, intervention, fighting, anything, right? So I think it's it's past the point where there's room to debate that there is deliberate targeting. Uh, the final one is starvation, right? So, I mean, age-old tactic to besiege and starve out a city, right? Uh, but again, it's a war crime. You're not supposed to use starvation as a weapon of war. Uh and again, has been used, was used in Homs, was used in Aleppo. I mean, it was used against Homs, was used against Aleppo. Uh, and so when people were evacuated from there, again, there were reports of severe malnutrition, deaths from hunger, members of the family would like stopped eating so others could eat. So just, you know, if you made a checklist of like, here are the sections under which war crimes are chargeable, you could probably take all of them, right? It's like, if it were not a government doing this, we would call these terrorist tactics, right? It's deliberate targeting of civilians with violence for political means. Because it's a government doing it, we call them crimes against humanity, war crimes. Right. But they are the same. And because they are the government, probably it's doing it at a scale that most terrorist outfits cannot do. Yeah, so I mean, it's I don't have adjectives for this, right? It's it's just been, and again, this is what we're worried is coming to Idlib is that there are there are six or seven years of war that tell us that this is how the Assad regime has dealt with not just rebels or protesters, but anybody, civilian, armed, whatever, who is not willing to just absolutely bow down to them. And now, if it is the last stand of the rebels, then the government forces want to annihilate them, right? Such that there is no final place of refuge they can go to. So the kind of violence we can expect might be worse than what we have seen, if a worse is possible. So let me put it like this, right? If this level of violence was enacted on people of a single ethnic group, we would not hesitate for a moment to use the word genocide. It's just that the legal requirement that they are being targeted for their ethnicity is not met, right? But if you imagine a crime of politicide, that they're being targeted for their political affiliation, yeah, absolutely. And it's just not a word that we use to elicit horror, unfortunately. And beyond a point, people are just getting numb, right? I mean, there have been 
questions of Syria and beyond a point this level of horror it's tough for anyone to sort of digest day in and day out unless you're living it and uh, it's unfortunate that so many of us have sort of disengaged from what's happening in Syria but uh, Amea let's I mean we've been talking about the geopolitics of it the ugliness of the warfare but let's sort of spend the rest of the podcast talking about what's actually happening to the people of uh, Syria, right? Ultimately, this is, I mean, to call it a humanitarian crisis would be uh, a gross and almost negligent understatement, right? Um, how can you even tell us a few numbers about uh, how many people have been affected, how many have been killed in this entire conflict that has lasted now seven years and more? So the population of Syria before this entire sequence of events, about 2010, was 22 million-ish. Statistics from 2018 say that approximately half a million people have been killed in the course of the war. A little over five and a half million are refugees. They've fled the country. That's a quarter of the country. More than. uh, Another 6.5 million are internally displaced. So they have not fled across an international border, but they are refugees within Syria, as it were. And then, you know, somewhere, almost 3 million people by the UN's estimate are in urgent need of humanitarian assistance. This overlaps somewhat with the internally displaced numbers. Some people are displaced, some are in their homes, uh, but in urgent humanitarian need. And all the people who have left who managed to leave Syria as refugees are not necessarily in places of comfort either, right? No, many or are in... the opposite. For the most part, they are not. But just, just add up those numbers, right? 6.5 million internally displaced, 5.5 uh, million refugees, uh, half a million killed. That's what? That's 12.5 million out of a population of 22 million? Right. I mean, if that doesn't indicate the magnitude and in six or seven years, it's not that this has happened over like an extended period of time. Right. And it's not like the remaining, uh, I don't know, 10, 11 million are uh, happy and well off. Right. I mean, it's not like the rest of Syria, which the government is now controlling, is sort of functioning very well. Right. Uh, so you have 22 million people in one state of crisis or another with probably a surrounding population of another 10 million uh, or so also affected in some way, economically, socially or otherwise. Right, about 12 million in in this sort of acute crisis and then the other 10 million sort of uh, living in the same set of circumstances that has created those 12 million and their crisis. And in fear of ending up in the same place as the 12 million. Yeah, which, which, as we said, it's a, it's a repressive government. And so that's their target. Amongst the refugees, the largest number, about 3.4, 3.5 million, are in Turkey. Okay. Uh, Turkey is not signatory to the Refugee Convention. It has taken them. It has basically set up this independent camp infrastructure for them. It's an approach that has not been tried before. And it's like, on the one hand, it's sort of better provided and more humane than a lot of other refugee settings. Uh, on the other hand, it, it puts them in a state of like high uncertainty. Tell me more about this. What? How is Turkey approaching the refugees? So Turkey does not, because they've not signed the convention, they don't necessarily have a legal obligation right, towards the refugees. But they've said, these are our neighbors, we have a humanitarian obligation. So we're going to make sure that they are provided for. And so Turkey has basically built massive amounts of camp infrastructure, housing all of these people making provisions for like basics like nutrition and education. But they've also said you cannot have any legal claim whatsoever here. You can't work here. You can't like at some point of time you're going to leave here. We're not going to have you here permanently. Like on the one hand, in terms of just the basic humanitarian need, they really are being served. Right. There are many worse circumstances to be in, including the ones that they escaped from. But in terms of any thought to the future or like what they're going to be able to do thereafter, absolutely unclear. You know, if the Assad regime really wins a military victory tomorrow, 
and turns around and says, we don't want any of these traitors. These people are completely stuck because Turkey's only response will basically be the war is done. Go back. We're not maintaining this anymore. Right. So it's it's very hard to tell. But I like at the same time, I want to acknowledge that the necessary humanitarian intervention or actions have been taken. The long term is the challenge. Right. Iraq has about a quarter million refugees. Jordan has 600 or 650,000. Uh, Lebanon has taken a million. So the, the majority are actually in the region. Uh, further out, Sweden, Germany, uh, something like 25 or 30,000 in the US, about 50,000 in Canada. A lot of the news that you read, ironically, is actually from these smaller numbers that are in Germany, Sweden, Canada, the US, about like, oh, how will it affect the culture? How will they integrate, etc. But they are just, whatever, less than 10% of the, or so. Yeah, 10 to 15%, I think, of the total number of refugees. But of course, given the military situation right now, we also expect the number of refugees to increase. And uh, I noticed that you don't mention Saudi Arabia in this list of places. Because they have not taken any refugees from, uh, certainly not from Syria. Yeah, there are refugees in Egypt, there are refugees in Jordan, there are refugees in Lebanon, there are even refugees in Iraq, which like, you know, if you pause to think about it, is probably like the least best place to go short of Syria. But there are none in Saudi Arabia or the other Gulf states. And uh, that's been something that even like Germany and the EU have been telling them. Like, we live by our obligations, but this is your region, you have the money. And the most prosperous countries in that region, with sufficient resources, uh, with excellent resources to be able to help, have not intervened in a positive manner. Not at all. I mean, it's it's a truism that refugees are perceived negatively. But this goes beyond perception, right? There's, there's some amount of like, very deliberate politics here. We think of this as a humanitarian crisis. I mean, there's a lot of people suffering. But can you tell us a little more about the lives of the people and something that we would not ordinarily know about the kind of trauma that people experience in this uh, horrific process. And I'm sure that's a podcast or a A thesis topic yes and more but uh, and a few things that we may not be so familiar with so let me try to talk through three or four just different pieces of research that i've come across so i've been following about when i went to grad school it was when violence was starting to pick up in syria early 2013 this whole chemical weapons negotiation was happening I had classmates who were from there. I got to work with negotiators who were working on the crisis. People who were trying to come up with deals or situations for it. Uh, so I started following it pretty closely, right? And so three or four pieces of research that have come up since then. Safer World, if I'm remembering correctly, has a research report on the frequency of displacement. How many times do you think that the average refugee family has been displaced in the course of the Syrian conflict? And I'll give you the first order answer is that it's not one. It's not that they immediately escaped the country. That's not at all the the norm. A couple of times you go from where you are to maybe a larger area and then maybe something close to the border and then get out. So for somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of the refugees, that number was in the range of 9 to 17. The average was 12 or 13. Wow. Wow. They moved around from place to place 12 times to 17 times before they left the country. There was some sort of violence that displaced them from their homes. So they went somewhere else, maybe a friend, a family, etc. And they were displaced from there and displaced and displaced and displaced, you know, 12 times, 13 times, 17 times. The 12th or the 13th or the 17th one is the one that took them across the border. Right. And so. And even that was not necessarily safe haven at the get go. So the stat is counting only till the first point that they cross the border. It may be that they've moved again thereafter. There's two things that are causing this. One is that your entire social capital, your ability to cope with emergency or disaster is very bound up in the place where you live. So displacement in itself heightens your risk for subsequent displacement like nothing else. 
because your resources at home are gone. Uh, the second is that it points to this pattern of deliberate targeting of civilians. That the regime really was looking for places where civilians were gathering, including displaced population, which is sort of a very obvious flow. And then targeting those as well. So when I said that civilians and fight and rebels have been corralled into Idlib, it literally has been subsequent episodes of violence driving them further and further towards that place, right? Uh, so this is one piece on sort of the average number of displacements. It's a lot higher than we think it is. I don't know what is more typical or more conventional, but the idea of holding territory and then gaining control over your own population again seems like the more natural sequence of events in even a slightly more humane context, right? So these are Syrians. You are the Syrian government. You want to reoccupy and take control over their lives again and become their government again and uh, employ the monopoly over violence over them again. Whereas this seems to be far worse, right? Yeah, as I said, it's, it's scorched earth politics, right? It's not no, it's scotched people politics. It's not, I'm going to take over this territory again. It's, I'm going to first drive you all out. And like, I'll see what I want to do with it later. Related to this, I think, is the fact that, uh, you, you know, when you go into the numbers, about a third of the refugees are children. And so there's also a lot of research recently pointing to the long-term consequences of childhood trauma. And these children have suffered more traumatic events, both frequency and intensity, in like the first 10 years of their lives than most people live in their entire lives. And so, you know, one is displacement is a lot more frequent within a short period of time than we think it is. The second is that the effects of the trauma from this linger a lot longer than we think they do. Right, the, the the cognitive deficits, the emotional deficits, the social deficits, the like lifelong re-experience of trauma. So the the book that you may want to read is called "The Body Keeps the Score" uh, by Dr. Besser van der Kolk. Van der Kolk is V A N D E R K O L K about the intergenerational transmission of trauma. Trauma experienced by the parents is causing genetic and epigenetic changes in the child. And so the child's uh, susceptibility to various stress and anxiety related conditions, both mental and physical, is higher, right? And this is something that they may pass on to. I mean, we don't have the longitudinal data to say, does it go parent, child, grandchild? Right. But potentially, they could pass it on to even two. Yeah, even if not by genetics or epigenetics, but by lived experience and nurture, right? So Yeah. So in the sense, the conflict and the effect of the conflict lives on for multiple generations and can perpetuate conflict apart from just causing harm to that population in general. Yeah, like the, the intensity of this conflict and the fact that it's actually been like packed within six or seven years sometimes makes us feel like, you know, a whole lot has happened in this time. But again, the effect of it is going to linger for literally generations, right? One of my professors says... Uh, War kills more people than it kills. And this is sort of the very literal demonstration, right? It's something that worries me a lot. That if you look at the the sort of the geopolitical and the legal situation that we find ourselves in, right? Nobody, no actor, no confluence of interests was able to prevent the Syrian government from acting in this way. As you said, even strategic logic would suggest doing something different. And they chose this just more vengeful path. And nobody had the leverage or the ability to stop them, despite trying for the entire time. And it worries me that this is foreshadowing the kind of war that we're going to see in the near future. The kind of conventions and norms and international law that we set into place in the 20th century in the wake of the world wars those norms and laws are being discarded now in this age of conflict, right? I mean, so we, we are getting to a new and perhaps uglier norm. You know, international law as a field never really talks about like things in a one zero state. It's, it's never happened, didn't happen. It's always weakening, strengthening trend. But yes, a lot of our humanitarian law 
conventions and requirements are on a weakening trend. They are on a weakening trend because A, leverage to make sure that they are abided by is lower. B, because accountability for these issues has not yet been decided. Right. And so one thing to watch going ahead is whether and how any sort of accountability for these atrocities in Syria is actually created or determined or set and the extent to which states and like the UN and other international bodies will play a part in that. Uh, it may not be much because Syria has basically said, end of the day, I am fighting against internal armed dissidents. This is my supreme sovereign, right? What I do in the process? Yeah, okay, I broke some conventions. What are you going to do about it? Already the trend in armed conflict is towards a greater number of internal conflicts rather than international ones, right? Already the trend is that once it's internal, then you start getting these geopolitical right. other players coming in. And so long as you have Russia, China, some large power who's notionally got your back, that's enough of a veto, an effective real world veto to any kind of international intervention to uh, actually get human rights back in place, to get humanity back in place. I mean, yeah, like basic compliance with humanitarian norms back in place. It is. And so the more that we see a tendency towards urban warfare, towards warfare happening in civilian dominated regions, towards what like Rupert Smith calls war among the people instead of war on the field, the greater the likelihood that governments will act with this sort of impunity. And unless we can come up with either stronger enforcement mechanisms or stronger accountability mechanisms that can presumably deter people from this in the future. You know, what what happens in Idlib tomorrow could happen to any of us as well. Uh, thank you, Maya. We often talk, uh, including on this show, about the kind of brave new world that we are entering. And that's usually spoken about in a positive context, even if cautious. But uh, here... We need to acknowledge that the 21st century can also be an ugly, scary world that we can enter. Uh, one that we are not able to completely imagine when we close our eyes. But if we do look closer with open eyes at Syria and about things happening around the world, maybe we have a chance at avoiding uh, a repeat of this. Thank you so much, Amaya. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the chance to speak about this topic, Pawan. The situation in Syria and Idlib is changing by the day. But the one unchanging fact is that it is one of the greatest humanitarian disasters of our times. We must also remember that such a dire conflict can break out anywhere in the world. The least we can do is to keep our eyes and ears open. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions for Amea or for us, do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. You can subscribe to the Pragati Podcast on the IVM Podcast app or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We're there everywhere. Hi, my name is Anupam Gupta. I'm B50 on Twitter. I am the host of Pesa Pesa, the show that talks money. On my show, I speak to experts from every field of money and finance, from stock markets, equities, debt funds, credit cards, life insurance, every possible area of money and finance that you can think of. We even did an episode on cryptocurrency. I've got fantastic guests from mutual funds to personal finance experts everywhere. Robo-Advari, startups, just name it, we've got it. At Pesa we help you make smart decisions about money. You work hard for money. Now make your money work hard for you. New episodes out every Monday and you can listen to my show on the IVM podcast app or any other podcasting app that you have. Give me a word. Ya koi bhi line. Kuch bhi ho sakta hai yaar. Kya kaha aapne? Topi. Okay. Mohan Joshi hated wearing topis. He felt suffocated in them. Topi pehente hi usse school ki yaad aati thi. Where of course he had no choice but to wear a topi. But jis din pass out hua, usi din usne apne topi ka bonfire bana diya. And since then, he'd never worn a cap or a hat. Na kadakti dhoop mein and not even to bacho from the thandi. But from Monday 26th February, Mohan Joshi had to wear a topi all the time. Why? 
Because if he didn't, everyone around him knew exactly what he was thinking. They knew that he was wondering how the girl in the yellow churidar would look without clothes. They knew when he was calling the boss a sadela tomatoer. They knew everything. But how did this happen? अरे भाई यही तो स्टोरी है और ये स्टोरी आप ही ने मुझे दिया बाई गिविंग मी द स्टार्टिंग वर्ड यही तो है द क्रॉक्स टेल्स वर्ड्स आपके कहानी आपके लिए कैच द स्टोरीज ऑन मंडे एंड थर्सडे ऑन द आईवीएम वेबसाइट एप एंड एनी यू गेट योर पॉडकास्ट फ्रॉम सी यू सून